I was asked by my son-in-law last night, where are you going to be preaching tomorrow? So I'm like, well, anyone who was here last week should be able to answer that question. <laughs> so can you all answer for him, please, where will we be this morning? Chapter 3, exactly, Philippians chapter 3. So look with me, please, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 is where we'll begin our reading this morning through verse 11. Paul writes, but what were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have heard the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of God by faith, that I may know him. The power, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I want to mention something here before we even get into the text. There's a couple of things to notice, of course, um, and to obviously draw from this passage. But in verse 9, Paul makes the statement, it's not by righteousness, my own righteousness, which is of the law, and of course, He's drawing a contrast here to show that there is no righteousness that comes by the law. He's making that point. He says, but rather it is the righteousness, if you notice, that is through the faith of Christ. And when you look at this statement, the faith of Christ, I, I believe there's two things for us to really glean from that and draw from that immediately anytime we read such a statement. First of all, we recognize that it's not our faith. We don't possess faith. God gives that to us, the ability and, and understanding to believe him. But notice what he says, the faith of Christ. And I also think we can look at this verse and these statements made such as this throughout Paul's epistles and recognize that Paul is actually saying that this is in reference to the faithfulness of Christ. It's through his faithfulness. And then he says that which is by faith. Includes by saying that, he says the righteousness which is of God by faith. So it's his righteousness, it's his faithfulness but yet he gives us then faith to believe in the sufficiency of Christ in his faithfulness. And so it's important we recognize that as we study through even reading such a passage as this, that we recognize the faith of Christ, it's his faith, but also that it's his faithfulness by which all of these truths are realized in the life of the believer. And so we're going to look more into that, of course, as we work our way through this passage this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, opportunity to stand and proclaim your truth. We thank you for the word of God and how Christ is. Thank you for this passage, this text which we read this morning, and we thank you for the truth of Paul's explanation that he has provided of the superiority and excellency of knowing Jesus, and that to know him is everything. And Father, we thank you for uh, the clarity of such a declaration as Paul makes, and even the comparisons that he provides in this passage which we've read this morning. I pray that we might have receptive hearts, Lord, that your spirit would help us to, to have ears to hear and, and eyes to see and hearts to receive and understand the truth of that which is before us this day in your word. And Father, that as we rejoice in the truth of the incarnate Christ, may we recognize again that he is actually Lord of lords and King of kings and 
one day we will stand before you and it will be only because we can stand in his righteousness as your word declares. So we thank you for this wonderful truth. May we live in the joy of this truth each and every day. We ask this in Christ's name. Thank you and be seated. Last week we began our examination of the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And at, at this you that there are five divisions within this third chapter of the epistle. First, in verse 1, Paul explains his effort to provide a safeguard for the church. We'll look at that in just a moment again. Verses 2 through 6, Paul exposes the error of the Judaizers who attempted to deceive the church and draw them away from Christ. Verses 7 through 11, Paul declares the superiority of knowing Jesus, which we are looking at this morning. Verses 12 through 16, Paul affirms his desire and commitment to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And then verses 17 through 21, Paul exhorts the church to follow his example in, com- in his commitment to know Christ. So we began our study last week in verse 1. I want to briefly review this. And Paul provided this, uh, this reminder. He said, remember, there is safety and repetition of the truth. In verse 1, we see Paul wrote, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So Paul begins this warning by exhort- exhorting the church to rejoice in the Lord. When he says, finally... We understood and and studied this out to see that it means whatsoever happens. He's not actually coming to a conclusion yet. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul again will use the word finally. And at this point, he is more so concluding the epistle. But yet, here in chapter 3, when he uses that term finally, it is a statement saying, whatever happens, that's how we can understand it, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul continued to state in chapter 3, verse 1, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Paul used repetition of the truth as a safeguard for the church. We need to be reminded of the truth over and over again. It doesn't mean we need to hear the same quote-unquote sermon every week, but it means that we need to have the truth before us at all times, being reminded of the truth that we may be more so firmly grounded, planted, established in the truth. Paul wrote and stated that we be not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So as, as, as all these teachings come along, we are to earnestly, as Jude says, contend for the faith. We are to, to agonize concerning the faith. We are to stand and understand the truth of that which has been once delivered unto the saints and to be rooted and grounded therein. I'm afraid today, let me just stop for a moment, pause, and I'll come right back. But it seems as though today, and I'm afraid that within what most people view as modern-day Christendom or the church, that which is visibly seen, there is such a departure from the faith and from the truth that has happened. And the, the true uh, travesty of it all is that those who are engaged in such a departure are absolutely ignorant that they are not rooted and grounded in truth to begin with. And so they are departing from the faith and from the truth and yet have no understanding that that's even taking place. And so we are warned against that. And Paul says there's a safeguard. He says, for me to repeat this to you is not grievous. And and by the way, for you it is safe. So he's saying this repetition is important within the body of Christ. Now that's not for the sake of just memorizing verses. No, it's that we might further understand and be rooted and grounded in that which we've been given. And we understand also it's through repetition that we are reminded of things that otherwise we may allow to slip. In Hebrews 2.1, we're told that, that we are to not... Uh, where to give earnest heed to those things which we have heard, lest we should let them slip. And then Second Peter 3, 1 and 2, Paul, uh, Peter writes in to the, his epistle, and he, and he states within that 
he is stirring up their remembrance. He is reminding them again of that which they already knew. Second, we saw Paul state, stated to remember that there are many who pervert the truth of Christ in verse 2. If you look at verse 2 again with me, uh, he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Paul refers to those who pervert the gospel as dogs and evil workers, and these are the people who attempt to add to grace, working evil, and by their actions they are denying the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, of which Paul rebuked the churches of Galatia concerning this very danger. And as a matter of fact, in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, and Galatians 1, 6 and 7, Paul clearly states that there is, they are to be on guard, and they are, he rebukes the church for having departed so quickly from him who had called them to this grace. And the whole context, of course, of Galatians, the emphasis is that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient, but yet also the Judaizers had crept in and they were saying that the, the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised in the, in the fleshly circumcision as that of the token of the Abrahamic covenant and that Jesus is fine and that's good, but you also need to follow after this, this Abrahamic covenant or token therein and so you need to be circumcised. Well, the same thing is happening here actually as you look at Philippians because Paul even goes on to speak and say that that he refers to these evil workers and these dogs, those of the concision. And what he means by that, again, as we saw last week, it literally means mutilation. And so what Paul is stating is that those who would perform this outward act of circumcision apart from Jesus Christ, or even in, a, in addition to Jesus Christ, it's nothing more than a physical mutilation of themselves. It has no spiritual or righteous significance whatsoever. And Paul goes on to explain, because the circumcision is that of the heart. And, of course, Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament of that which it pointed to and foreshadowed. It was all about Christ. And so we recognize then that it is the circumcision of the heart, not of that the outward flesh. And so these Judaizers had come in and perverted and teaching the gospel of Christ. And, and as a matter of fact, concerning this very specific manner, matter, uh, Paul in Galatians states that that. They are preaching another gospel, which is not actually another gospel, but it's a perversion of the gospel. And so he's saying that it's not there's two gospels, there's only one true gospel, but yet men have perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ using elements of truth and yet just adding to or taking from to the degree or point that it's no longer obviously the gospel at all. It's a perversion of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, because remember... The gospel is really the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is always preceded by the bad news, as we know. I've said, shared that with you and explained that many times. But yet, the fact of the matter is, it's the good news of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Again, as we read a moment ago, by the faith of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. And we have faith by God given to us to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus, to be all in all, and recognizing that we add nothing to ourselves to our spirituality our sanctification as believers even we add nothing to ourselves we rather rest in the righteousness of the lord jesus and resting and believing trusting that he is all sufficient so the judaizers who had infiltrated the church were attempting to persuade the philippian believers to trust in the works of their flesh for their salvation and or sanctification and rather than than fully trusting and resting in the sufficiency of jesus Third, Paul said, remember, verses 3 through 6, and we won't read all of these, place no confidence in the flesh. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, an Israelite among Israelites, and a religious zealot compared to no other. Yet Paul previously stated in verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit 
and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He's again alluding to the fact that it's not in circumcision of the flesh, it is not in works of the flesh that he is either saved nor sanctified, but rather it is in Jesus Christ and we worship God in the spirit. We are the circumcision, not because of an outward religious duty or following of the law or even partaking of the token of the Abrahamic covenant, but rather it is because the Holy Spirit, which is the true token of the new covenant. He is the pledge. He is the, he is the uh, earnest of the inheritance, as Scripture refers to him, who now dwells within us. And so he is that which has circumcised of the heart. He has separated that, 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 the, the heart from that sinful, wicked desire and flesh and has sanctified, made us righteous in Jesus Christ, though the flesh itself is not yet righteous, Yet we are sanctified and we've been made righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So remember, do not place confidence in the flesh. And Paul says that. He says, we are the circumcision, again, verse 3, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus all about Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. So this morning, we will begin the third division of this chapter. And Paul in this division emphasizes the superiority of knowing Jesus. And this portion of this epistle captures... In reality, the very essence of Paul's entire message or his entire thesis statement, which he outlines throughout this epistle, as Paul introduced to us, again, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And I want to remind you, I do not grieve to remind you of these things, and it's good for you, and you have a safeguard in these truths. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Paul wrote, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment, Verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Here Paul again provides the thesis statement for the entirety of the epistle, and it is this, that ye may approve things that are excellent. The word excellent here, as I've shared with you many times, means superiority. So Paul is saying that you may prove, and and the term prove is actually saying discover, that you would discover and hence embrace, acknowledge, and, and cling to those things which are superior to that which is excellent. So within these verses, in the first chapter of this epistle, Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers to discover and distinguish the distinctive difference between those things which are superior and those things are to those things which are inferior. As I mentioned a moment ago, our text this morning is really the epitome of Paul's thesis of this epistle. For it is in this text that Paul definitively declares that knowing Jesus Christ is superior to all other things, to anything else. As we celebrate, even during this moment, this day, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, may we recognize that it is the continued growth of our knowledge of him in his person and as God's provision on our behalf that is superior to all other things that we may know or we may have. Within verse 7, I'll explain first that knowing Christ is the only object of true value. Notice what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now this statement must connection with the previous statements which Paul has made, which we just reviewed. Paul begins verse 7 by referencing 
his previous statements, which he made in verses 4 through 6, in, in which Paul provided a very impressive resume. So we didn't read these a moment ago, so let's read them now. We discovered last week from verses 4 through 6 that Paul explained, if there were one who could claim rights by birth, by, by religion, by position, by passion, and by works, it was truly he. He says in verses 4 through 6, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Now, he just said in verse 3 that we have no confidence in the flesh. Then he says in verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now, it almost sounds as though, if you don't understand what Paul is saying in the context, it would sound as though Paul is almost boasting, going, you think you've done good, well, I've done much better. You think you've accomplished a lot, I've accomplished much more. He is actually saying that. But he's not doing it in a boastful manner, but rather in humility, and you'll see that in the following statements. He goes on to say, he explains what he meant by this, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, at Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul was an Israelite among Israelites. He was, a de- he was devoted to the Hebrew or the Jewish religion, a religious leader being a Pharisee among the Pharisees, and a religious zealot which could be compared to no other. However, all of Paul's accolades all the privileges he enjoyed as a Hebrew or a Jew, all that for which Paul had once devoted his entire life and committed himself to, all that which once he considered to be of the utmost physical, religious, political, and spiritual importance, Paul now says he regarded all those things as lost. He's saying, oh yeah, you you think that you can glory in your flesh? You think that you can boast of accomplishments? You think that you have a resume? Well, check mine out. And he says, here's my resume. And again, it would almost appear as though Paul is boasting. But yet he is boasting, but not in himself. He's boasting in Christ. (laughs) For Paul then says, wait a minute. See my resume? You think you have one? Look at mine. But guess what? It is worthless. It is absolutely useless. All these things that I would credit before as gain for righteousness' sake, Paul is saying, it's absolute garbage. It means nothing. Paul had already declared in verse 3, prior to providing this impressive resume, again we go back, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Here he's not claiming something of himself as far as he has accomplished. He's saying we are the circumcision from that inward circumcision which God, which worship in the Spirit. This is due to the presence of the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Notice he's saying not in the flesh. He says we have no confidence. We have no trust in the flesh. Once again, as I explained to you last week, it is not that Paul was boasting in his resume, but rather he was declaring that none of this meant anything. Paul conceded that his resume was useless, it was worthless, and that there was nothing in which he had done, nothing which he had become, or nothing which he would be in his flesh that could compare to the excellency, to the superiority of Jesus Christ and knowing him. While there was a time in which Paul placed great value in who he was and what he had accomplished, 
Now Paul had the understanding that the only thing of true value was Jesus Christ and knowing him. People boast of a lot of things. People will boast, well, I'm a pastor. People will boast, well, I'm a member of this church, or I'm, I'm a deacon, or I'm, and I hear that. And you hear people make such statements such as that. Let me remind you of something. None of that means anything. If your identity is not in Jesus Christ, then you have no identity. So our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And all that we have accomplished or all that we have done or all that we have become or all that we may become in the future is useless and worthless apart from knowing Jesus Christ. It means nothing. Paul further declared in verse 8, Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, Paul is not simply repeating himself, though he already said, though I I say to you again these things, it causes me no grief, and it's actually safe for you. He's not simply being repetitive, but now speaks rather in an all-inclusive manner. Now, notice what Paul said before. He said, what what things were gained to me, those things that, that I thought helped me in righteousness, those things that I credited to myself as righteousness, He says, all of those things, he says, I count as loss for the superiority of knowing Jesus. But now notice what Paul does. does, He's not just repeating what he just stated, but rather all-inclusive statement. Yea, doubtless, and I count. Anyone? I know it's not on the screen, but I count all things. Now, this is an all-inclusive statement. He's not only referring to things he might have considered before, but he's saying everything and anything other than knowing Christ is garbage in comparison. Not only does he consider his heritage, his status, his accomplishments as inferior to knowing Christ, but now he also explains everything else is inferior to the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And as Paul often does through Romans, through Ephesians, and, and now in Philippians, in relationship, in, in relation to or in regard to knowing Christ, he does this concerning salvation so often as well. He gives us a backdrop by which we are comparing the beauty and glory of the truth which he is stating. As I've mentioned many times, I think I mentioned this just a week or so ago. Like the jeweler who has a black velvet backdrop for which the diamond hangs and is reflecting and, and the light and showing the beauty. When you have it on that black, dark backdrop, it just causes it to seem all the more brilliant. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, here, here's the backdrop. All these things that I counted as righteousness, all these things that I thought were good things, all of these things that I believe to be helping me in my, in my journey to God, if you will, in my, in my working and serving Him. He says, all of that stuff I thought was good. He says, but when you see the beauty of knowing Christ, it is all just as a backdrop to reveal the brilliance of the beauty of what it is to truly know Jesus. So he's saying nothing else compares I've explained to you many times in English grammar, a colon is used to join two independent clauses in which the second clause expounds upon or explains the first clause. And we see that here in verse 8. Let's look at it again. Yea, doubtless, Paul says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I mean. So here he's explaining his first statement. And there are three crucial statements Paul makes in the latter part of this verse in which we will discover. First, Paul declared, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, the context of the word suffered in this verse means forfeited. So when he says suffered, it's not as though Paul is saying, oh, it was just so hard, it was just so difficult, and oh, I, you know, I really hate that I lost this. No, he's saying, I forfeited, I released, I let go, I walked away from. All of these things. So Paul is not whining over the loss of these things, but is confessing his willingness to forfeit those things which are inferior. Here is the point. Paul says, once I valued this, there was a time that I held a tight grip on who I was, my lineage, what I'd become, my education, my religious activity, my position within my religious circle. He says, I clung to this. This meant everything to me. But he says, I gladly walked away from all of that. I forfeit all of that, but here's why. Because there is something that is superior to all of that. And he says, when you see the superiority of Christ, when you see the beauty of knowing Him, then all of this other stuff, you will gladly walk away from that. I would venture to say and dare say to you, for those who claim to and profess to know Christ and cling to all of these things and matters of which Paul speaks, they have never truly seen the beauty of Jesus Christ and knowing Him. Paul goes on to say, I count them as refuse. Not only did Paul view thing, all things inferior to knowing Jesus, but he considered them as garbage, as refuse. He says, dung, it's, it's that which is, is cast out. He could not make a greater contrast than he does by this statement. Paul explained that to forfeit all of these inferior things was as one who was getting rid of garbage. Now, now notice the perspective. He's saying, again, these things that I clung to, these things that I invested in, these things to which I was trusting would be my righteousness before God, all of these things. He says, it's not only that I walk away going, well, I really don't need that. He's saying, I throw it out as though it is garbage because that's what it is. But he could only make such a statement contrasted to knowing Jesus by seeing that there was something superior. And here's my point. Here's what Paul's point is in the text. It's simply, until you see the beauty and superiority of Jesus Christ and knowing Him, you will continue to value that which is not valuable at all. But when you see Him for who He is, and you know Him in His beauty, in the person of Christ you go, grow in the depths of the truth of understanding and discovering who He is and what God has done through Him on our behalf, then you begin to throw everything else out. There are many people today, no doubt, especially today, there's two days of the week to which they cling to such, Christmas and Easter. And there are many people today, no doubt, who are clinging tightly to a profession, to their ministry, to their position, to their their heritage. My grandpa was a Baptist preacher. You've heard that kind of stuff before, right? Listen, all of that will gladly be thrown out the door and left for garbage when you see the beauty of knowing Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. In other words, 
He's saying all this was to be viewed as that which would never be looked back on again. It was disgusting and rotten, just as garbage. As a matter of fact, when we throw our garbage out, we don't go back out to it to make sure it's still there. We're looking for it to be taken away. And the longer it sits there, the more frustrating it becomes that it's not yet been removed. But we're not going out looking at it going, well, should I really throw that away? I don't know. No, we, it's garbage because we recognize it as, as such and we never go back to second guess whether or not it's garbage. Paul is saying, I have no, no second guesses here about all of these things. They are all garbage in contrast to knowing Jesus. 30 says, so that I may win Christ. The word win means gain. So Paul is declaring the reason he viewed all the things as garbage and the reason he forfeited all things was due to his understanding of the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul continued to grow in the knowledge of Christ, understanding who Jesus is, and further understanding the truth of what God the Father accomplished in the work of Jesus. To gain such knowledge of the depths of the person and work of Christ caused Paul to forsake all inferior things for he who is superior. This truth is the very crux of the message of this epistle. Once again, I remind you of Paul's thesis statement, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent. Paul also previously stated in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ. And and do you understand again what Paul is saying? For to me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's what Paul, let let me summarize what Paul is saying here. Knowing Jesus is everything. Second, knowing Christ is the only provision for true righteousness. Verse 9. Found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. As we grow our knowledge of our Lord Jesus, we further understand God's provision made for us in him. To know the person of Jesus Christ is to understand the position God has given us in Christ. Paul not only explains that all he was prior to knowing Jesus was inferior to knowing Jesus, but also all he could do in attempt to live according to the law was inferior and useless. For it is only in Christ that we are given God's righteousness and declared to be righteous by God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In his epistle to the Colossians, Paul wrote of both the focus of our attention discovering and embracing that which is excellent, and our death regarding the pursuit after things of earthly value as those whose lives are hid with Christ. In Colossians 3, 3, Paul, 1-3, Paul wrote, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Paul says you are dead, he's not talking about physically being absent of life, of course. He is saying that you have died with Christ. You are identified in his death. Therefore, you are also identified in his life. And he says here that we are to therefore set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth, and that we are, are, to, we are risen with Christ in his new life. So therefore, we are seeking things that are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So he's, he's, uh, he's comparing this death to that of not a physical death, but our identity in the death of Christ 
by which all of these things are now meaningless and useless, as Paul is explaining in Philippians. Paul further expounded upon this truth in his letter to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. You're very familiar, or, uh, familiar with this passage, no doubt. When Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, there's the death. Nevertheless, I live, there's the life. <laughs> Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. There's that resurrected life. And the life which I now live in the flesh, physical existence, I live by the faith, again, faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Paul says in verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul is concluding here that the identity God has provided us in his Son, our Lord Jesus, is superior to any and all other identity to which we could gain or possess or produce ourselves by our efforts. He says if righteousness comes by the law, then Jesus died for no reason. His whole death is useless. That's what he's saying. So here's what you must conclude. One of two things. I've said too many times, Jesus Christ is either all-sufficient or he's not sufficient at all. And in saying that, let me rephrase that same statement. We must conclude that either our efforts and our works are sufficient, and if that is true, it means that Jesus is not only insufficient, but his death was useless. His work and his person is useless to us. Or it is that Christ is sufficient and all else is insufficient and useless. And that is the conclusion to which Paul has arrived. Then third, knowing Christ is the only source of true hope or confidence. Verses 10 and 11. That I may know him, Paul says, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I of the dead. Paul's desire was one born out of an understanding of the superiority of knowing Jesus. And yet, with such a desire came also genuine confidence. Paul recognized that it was through an absolute commitment to know Christ in every possible manner that he would then one day fully know Christ with all the hindrances removed. Hence, Paul's statement concerning the resurrection of the dead. Again, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So if this is even going to be possible, it's only through knowing Christ. That's what Paul is saying. In verse 10, Paul listed three essentials in knowing Jesus. Notice what he states. The power of his resurrection. If Paul were to know the resurrection power of Christ spiritually and finally, ultimately physically, in the resurrection of the dead, it would require for him first to die. So Paul had to die. He had to identify in the death of Christ if he was going to realize the resurrected power of Christ in his life, physically speaking. But then also, for Paul to ever know the resurrection of the dead in a glorified body, he must first die. So again, I say to you, while many people today use this verse, Philippians 3.10, and they really only quote or emphasize the very first portion, usually, it is that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Well, yeah, that sounds great because we're going, oh, resurrected power. But again, we must recognize that there is a process by which we come to know resurrection power, and that process is called death. So we must die if we are going to know resurrection power. If, if it's resurrection power, the power of his resurrection, that obviously implies that we understand that something died that it might be resurrected. It only stands to reason. Such. So Paul is saying, 
that he had to die to his own selfish lust, his own desires, his own agendas, his own purposes, his own plans. And Paul had to die to self that Christ might live his resurrected life in Paul, just as Paul would have to physically die again to experience the resurrection of the dead to a glorified body, which would be incorruptible. In Romans 6, 4, Paul wrote, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and 54. Paul wrote, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. This very language should cause us to understand Paul's perspective that it had been radically changed and transformed from one focusing on the temporal to that which is eternal. For it is this perspective that demonstrates a life identified with and in Christ. Again, Paul says, I cling to all, I once clung to all of these things. If you think you can cling to something, oh, I have more to boast of than you. I have more to, to show. I, my, again, my resume is much more impressive than yours. And surely it was. But yet Paul now had died to that and now lived in the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. And he is saying that to know Jesus and his resurrection power in the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death is superior to everything else. Moving on to fellowship of sufferings, Paul knew that to know Jesus, he would also have to experience which Jesus lived. Jesus set an example for us that we should follow his steps, including his suffering. Isn't it interesting when we think of this in a physical perspective, when, when we speak of, of understanding someone, there are people who've gone out into, of course, homeless communities and have gone out into those communities as someone who is homeless, though they really were not, and they go out and experience life, what it's like to be homeless, at least for a short period of time. But the only way you can really relate to that is if you go out and live and experience that with them. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? The fellowship of his sufferings, Paul is saying, while obviously it would, could be true that, that many would say, oh, I want to know Jesus. I want the resurrected life and power in my life and make all of these claims, but yet the reality is if we are truly to know him, then we are live, to live in the life which he lived, and he is going to live his life in us. And that's why Peter makes the statement, of course, that he has set the example that we should follow in his steps, and that example is that of suffering. Our identity in the Lord Jesus is not only one of glory, but also suffering. Yet it is through the suffering of Christ and identifying in that suffering that we are promised to share in his glory. Romans 8, 17 and 18. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 1 Peter 2.21, Peter wrote, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. People say, I want to know Jesus, but here's what they want to know. They want to cherry-pick the parts of Jesus they want to know, know him. For to know him is to know him in his suffering, to know him is to know him in his resurrection, but to know him is to know him in his death. And that brings us to the third statement Paul makes, conformity to his death. Paul knew that if he were to know the life of Christ, he must first identify in the death of Christ. One cannot identify with Jesus in his resurrected life without first identifying in his physical death. 
Romans 6, 3 through 11 teaches this. Galatians 2, 20 and 21, we've already read, teaches us this as well. Paul's confidence in the resurrection of a glorified body rested in the sufficiency of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to know Jesus is to know both him and death and life. For it is Christ who is our confidence and knowing Christ which is our joy. Colossians 1.27, Paul wrote to a Gentile church. He said, to whom? Gentiles. God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope or the confidence of glory. I'll just really summarize much of what Paul has has said here throughout this text, as I've already done multiple times this morning up to this point. To know Jesus Christ, and I say know him, it doesn't just mean the moment of coming to salvational faith in Christ. I'm talking about to continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ because that's what Paul is referencing here. He's not saying, oh, to be saved in the sense of just not going to hell or eternal damnation and condemnation, oh, that, that is everything. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to know the person of Christ in salvation, but also in sanctification, in justification, and ultimately in glorification, all of these, he says that, to know the person of Christ, to know who he is, to understand who he is, to see him revealed in the word of God as he's been revealed, to know him in such a manner. He says to know Jesus Christ is everything. But then we must come to this conclusion. If to know Jesus is everything, that then means anything other than knowing Jesus is nothing. And that is what Paul is saying. If Christ is truly everything, then anything else is nothing. If knowing Christ is superior, then everything else is inferior. And that is the driving point that Paul is making, to know the excellency, to see the excellency of knowing Christ, his superiority, and to experience that continually as we know him. Let's stand together in prayer this morning. Father, thank you again for this time we can spend together.